Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Throughout history, the Baptists have been a lively bunch. Until recent years, they were despised by religious organizations due to their strict adherence to the Word of God. At times, they lived in such a way as to give meaning to the phrase, the sons of thunder. Their rich history was consumed with woes and victories directly related to their relationship with the Bible. That is, their strict loyalty to the literal understanding of God's Word established victorious Christian living, but hatred from corrupt governments and heretical religions. We are often inspired by people who risk all to serve the Lord our God. I am not a champion for the Baptist denomination, though my background is rooted firmly in the Baptist church. Ample criticisms of our brethren exist. A large number of our modern Baptists are moving in a uselessly liberal direction. They despise standards and have adopted a coercive mindset. They believe they can look like, act like, and live like the world, but somehow convert the lost. Convert from what and to what? Well, that still needs clarification. Then there are those of our legalistic brethren. They do not emphasize biblical teaching. They place no focus on preaching the gospel to the lost, but they will measure the length of a parishioner's haircut. This group of brethren is shallow and domineering. Then there is the historical bias of many of our brethren. With intellectual dishonesty that is directly kin to bearing false witness, they search throughout history and make any group they presume to agree with Baptist. Even worse, they will admit their dishonesty by calling the particular group Baptistic when reality needs stretching to fit their narrative. Now, these brief criticisms being so, the reality still exists. If one hears the truth in any form today, it will be heard in a Baptist church. The problems that exist in some Baptist churches do not infer the truth left and went elsewhere. Instead, some churches that bear the name Baptist have decided to abandon the truth. Any group that abandons truth in exchange for the world's acceptance deserves criticism. 
In this sense, large numbers of Baptist churches are not influencing the world, but influenced by the world. This collision between our churches and the world is where our topic intersects. One means the church is adopted to appease the world is obedience to America's communist masters. Many have endorsed the erroneous idea that offering penance to the woke mobs will purchase a measure of peace. Of course, it is that peace which the world giveth. This empty bliss is soon revealed by reality to be self-deception. Any person or group who gives up the solid ground of truth to appease the mob will be engulfed in shameful controversy. Placating to the woke is like giving the taste of blood to a shark. But the communistic mobs grow on. In the process, they gain money, influence, and most concerning of all, power. With the rise of every socialist or communist group around the world comes the persecution of Christians. My brethren, despite our imperfections as a group, how will we handle the coming persecution? If a local congregation has developed a propensity to be like the world, what will they do when the Gestapo or the KGB are at their doors? My aim is not to be hyperbolic, but rather to sound an early alarm. To facilitate this, a case study will be provided here. As Christians, we need to consider America's chosen direction. Despite the overwhelming evidence and amassed death toll collectivist ideologies have provided us, our country seems determined to go that route. To assist with this, we will examine excerpts from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. It will say nothing of a Christian revolution and nothing of taking up arms, but we will read of Solzhenitsyn's interaction with the group he identified as the Baptists while circulating communism's most prominent invention, the gulags. Dictators and apostate religions have despised Bible-believing Christians since the inception of New Testament Christianity. As the kings of the earth were replaced by governmental systems defined by their economic theories, Marxism took up the hateful mantle of persecution. The Gulag Archipelago is a comprehensive volume which details the intricate connection between Marxist ideology and the evils of the Soviet system. Collectivist ideologies, socialism, Marxism, communism, and Nazi Germany are the most oft-repeated and failed ideological systems the world has known. Rather than causing the working men to unite, they prove to be forms of societal torture. The extensive three-volume set of Solzhenitsyn's book began with the release of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. In the words of Solzhenitsyn himself, the publication of this book caused a dam to break loose. Letters began to flood in detailing the experiences of the Soviet Union's tormented citizens. An entire country was subject to communism's finest, and Solzhenitsyn was going to tell their horror stories. He became overwhelmed by their trust and vulnerability, which produced in him a personal duty to publish this information. Many of these letters came from people who were still subject to their tormentors. 
This collection of books came to be known in format as a work of literary investigation. The factual details of one life after another served to build a compelling case against the collectivist ideology that caused it all. Forced societal conformity began the misery. Torture by cruel interrogation at the Lubyanka started the nightmare. From there, those who were arbitrarily arrested and convicted were taken to the labor camps, the gulags. Some were given 10 years. Some were given 25 years for the crime of being subject to the Soviet Marxist system. Confessions were forced, or at the very least, coerced. Article 58 made the desire for a conviction easily attainable. Convicts of this sort were deemed enemies of the state and therefore political prisoners. Murderers and thieves were treated better than those dubbed political enemies. Under collectivist systems, political persecution knows no boundaries. Any limitations that may exist are easily and deliberately overcome. To them, what is most important is maintaining the narrative, despite the damage such maintenance causes. The intentionally broad nature of Article 58 and the desire to uphold the narrative meant that people from all walks of life were implicated and imprisoned. Even the captors themselves came to be subject to the very abuse they once administered. Amongst this ever-expanding group was Solzhenitsyn's Baptists. Totalitarian leaders have a natural hatred for religions of any sort unless they can be manipulated to establish dominance. The appeal to religious leaders is enticing, an opportunity to be treated well by the government most notably in a time when society at large is under forced conformity. Religions can often be tempted beyond that which they are able and take their seat as the counterfeit mouthpieces for the government's ideology. But Bible-believing Christians will not be bought. Religions have political aspirations. Skin for skin, <laughs> yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But what is a dictator supposed to do with a man who has been made free indeed? The battle for Russia's heart is a troubled history. Historically, Baptists appeared in Russia in the 1850s. By the 1860s, they had spread from the minority German-speaking camps to all of Russia and Ukraine. Their doctrine extended from the countryside into bigger cities by itinerant preachers. These preachers received monetary support from the churches they helped to establish and therefore serve. The majority of converts were peasants. They would hold meetings in earthen-floored homes and cottages. As they made inroads into the cities, they would meet in basements and warehouses. These meetings were characterized by prayer, hymn singing, and preaching from God's Word. Until 1905, these meetings were illegal. After their legalization the scattered congregations became more organized, though they did not own dedicated buildings. This fast-spreading movement threatened political and religious contemporaries of that day. The educated elite determined the influx of Baptist congregations was an infiltration of Western ideas. Of course, I find it interesting that Baptist doctrine was considered a Western idea at one time in history. The West would undoubtedly reject that idea today. 
and rightfully so as the West abandons its Judeo-Christian influence. The arrival of Baptist doctrine, which taught every man was made in God's image and therefore deserved a measure of respect, threatened the state ideology and the stranglehold of religious orthodoxy. The Baptist's intense drive to convert unbelievers was overwhelmingly successful, which further threatened the strength of that group of people in every society who believed they should be the filter of all ideas. They thought their scripture-based doctrine was the solution to all of society's woes. Their willingness to effectively articulate that reality caused them further contention with the state and religious institutions. Their written discourses scattered throughout the country, inspiring Russians to adopt these ideas, allowing them a non-traditional Russian pathway in life. Of course, this also left a trail of written material for the coming Marxist revolution to use against them. When political powers gain control, we learn much about their values related to legal implications, religious freedom, societal identity, and overall individual boundaries. During the early 20th century, Russian life was in upheaval as its societal structures were torn down. The deconstructive activity revealed that a lower-class peasant order in Russian society was hungry for opportunity. The Baptists provided for them a means to be elevated by the help of God and by one's own bootstraps. Ideas of individual responsibility accompanied by help from the true and living God can reinvigorate a demoralized society. Their enemies unwittingly remarked how the Baptists were giving even peasants a new sense of self. The success of apostate churches and totalitarian regimes require society to be reliant upon them. This new identity steeped in individual respect for every person made in the image of God is damaging to the possibility of control. Honest biblical teaching forces one on the front lines of confrontation between God and society's pagan ungodly ideas. Just a quick note, if you have not found yourself in this confrontation, not by way of political affiliation, but rather through honest biblical teaching, consider yourself part of the problem. Furthermore, if you bear the title Baptist but have decided to buy into the influx of collectivist power in America in exchange for an early position in the hierarchy, you are self-deceived. Contention between the course of this world and God's word and with people who live by God's word is natural. This inherent reality will not be mitigated by compromise on the part of God's people. The Baptists became a target of the revolution because Marxism requires the existence of a class struggle. Divisions between the classes were a legitimate problem in Russia. But biblical doctrine helps one become content in whatsoever class they have found themselves. Not only so, but it also sets forth a vision for how this class struggle can honestly and legitimately be broken. But revolution is not the answer, and never will be. The answer is a transformative change in cultural ideas with that of biblical truth. Baptists require freedom of conscience. They require the freedom to meet and organize without restrictions. And they desire an unregulated religious marketplace to promote their ideas. This caused them to challenge official institutions and assumptions about society's restrictive structures. 
not to tear down, but rather to improve what existed. Baptists in Russia tried fervently to promote these values during their encounters with governments and fellow citizens. Despite these attempts, imperial and Soviet states attempted to curb their missionary zeal. This inspired the Baptists to behave as though these freedoms were theirs already. They determined to obey God rather than man. But an unfortunate reality, as it may be, man won the revolution against man, and the violent have taken the kingdom of heaven by force. Thus Russia became the model state for collectivist ideologues, and of the millions of bodies they collected, the Baptists were among them. Solzhenitsyn tells us that religious observers were being arrested at will. No crime was necessary. He notes a particular night called the Night of Struggle. Christmas Eve, 1929, a majority of the religious intelligentsia in Leningrad was arrested. By 1932, churches were being closed on a large scale. This was a calculated move by the government of that day. They would use either forced shutdowns of churches or they would implement various forms of manipulation. Attempts to manipulate the Baptists revealed a well-read and philosophically sound group of believers. Thus, manipulation would not prevail. Intimidation would be the required method. The primary target of the Marxist government at this time was an admixture of Baptists and disciples of Leo Tolstoy. In the 1920s, a group of Baptists and Tolstoyans were forcibly exiled together. They were taken to the foot of Mount Altai, and upon arrival, they joined together to create a settlement. Within the settlement, they established a way of living that was consistent with Bible teaching. When people live under a leadership heavily influenced by God's word, (laughs) freedom is the result. In exile, they attained this freedom in great measure. Teachers were free to teach the children within the settlement in accord with their biblical beliefs. They had no interest at all in teaching the government-dictated curriculum. Eventually, this was noised abroad and the members of the settlement began to be arrested. They went from freedom and forced exile to life in the labor camps. The Soviet Union was known for its massive network of secret informants. So much so, they became more informant (laughs) and less secret. Their hundreds of thousands of security officers worked tirelessly to recruit what Solzhenitsyn calls stool pigeons. In 2021 America, we might call them fact checkers. The driving force for arrests and recruitment were the Soviet-imposed quota systems. The secret police were given unrealistic arrest quotas. Likewise, the security officers were given outrageous recruitment quotas. Anytime the secret police failed to meet their arrest quota, they would simply walk through the streets or their own homes, for that matter, and pick someone to arrest. Whether they had broken the law or not was irrelevant, but the quota was relevant. The secret security officers were required to be just as arbitrary in their recruitment. They enlisted people they knew would never provide them any information. One such soul was the wife of a Baptist minister. Her name was Nikitin, and her husband died in the Soviet labor camps. A certain commonality in the labor camps was one's desire to die 
or the fulfillment of that desire. Nicotine was apprehended, and then she was forced to stand for hours. Solzhenitsyn does not suggest the amount of time, but understand the intent was to break her in preparation for cruel interrogations. So it was likely she stood for a torturous amount of time. After the torture, she would be questioned for hours in a relentless manner. During her questioning, she gave them no information. So they officially arrested her and subjected her to forced labor in a factory. She refused to provide them with information, even to her own detriment. It seems she loved others better than herself. The purpose of this extensive spy network was to make sure every citizen felt the pressure. Unfortunately, the Soviets did not have Facebook, Google, or Twitter to assist their desire to spy on their citizens. Solzhenitsyn estimated that out of every four or five city dwellers, at least one was an informant or had been approached to be an informant. This network of stool pigeons was great at weakening the ties between the people. They created separation and paranoia between the people to facilitate governmental control. Imagine family members, friends, neighbors, or co-workers. All of them or some of them are stool pigeons. What's more, you may serve as a number needed to meet the stool pigeon's quota. Society took on an odd mutation in which the societal structure was reoriented. The people concluded it is more prudent to betray rather than to be betrayed. Either way, one or the other would end up in the labor camps eventually. Under Marxist revolutionary terms, everyone eventually becomes the enemy. But the most common form of betrayal in that day was the shrinking back of society. All courage was lost. It was best not to speak up on behalf of truth. To simply turn away conveniently when a fellow citizen or a family member was unjustly targeted. Society at large would be informed the targeted individual is now an enemy of the state, and this would serve as sufficient notice to everyone that they must stay away. But what of those who know them personally, who know they are being targeted unjustly? They have been declared enemies of the state. Failure to participate in this false show of condemnation is seen as a threat. Then there is the family left behind. They are thrust into a pending state of condemnation as well. A member of their family has been declared an enemy of the state. Help offered to their family will be seen as aiding the enemy. Not only was helping them a crime, but everyone must openly shun and take pleasure in their demise. Thus, the family left behind becomes invisible, only to exist when targets of abuse are desired. One can imagine the amount of pressure this placed upon society as a whole. This is a form of divide and conquer. There just never seemed to be an end to the divisions nor the conquering. Chapter 5 of Volume 3 is titled, Poetry Under a Tombstone. Truth Under a Stone. The opening paragraphs of this chapter detail the dangers of attempting to write in the labor camps. Solzhenitsyn said that busying his mind with writing 
helped him forget what was being done to his body. Amid the labor camps, under the control of camp authority, who were barking out orders and pointing their Tommy guns, Solzhenitsyn would get lost in the world of his mind, writing poems. He would tuck himself away and write. This brought him moments of great joy. Writing in the camps is a severe offense. Thus, Solzhenitsyn's joy, if found out, would be costly. To avoid trouble, he would either conceal his writings or make them unreadable to the camp authorities. When writing, he would use the etymological root form of a word as a common noun. Names were written with dashes enough for him to know them, but not recognizable to anyone else. Due to repeat searches on escorts and various journeys, the only place he could reasonably hide his writings was in his head. Solzhenitsyn explained that life in the labor camps causes prisoners to become void of knowledge. Thus, he was able to store his writings in his memory, then use pen and paper to edit his prose and poems further. In the camps, a prisoner could request pen and paper, but they could not keep them. Whatever was written must be turned in, and it most certainly would be read carefully. So Solzhenitsyn would write 12 to 20 lines, then memorize, and then he would burn the paper to conceal what was written. He developed a peculiar system of memorization, using either matches or a specially made rosary. He would separate them into units and tens. As he memorized, he would use the matches or the beads of the rosary to count his lines. He would remember every 50th and every 100th line with great care. Once per month, he would review all that he had memorized up to that point. By the end of his time in the labor camps, he reports that he memorized around 12,000 lines. Solzhenitsyn was not alone in his desire to write. He would from time to time meet other writers and poets. They had all developed ingenious means of concealing their writings, most of which included some sort of extensive memorization. The Baptist introduced Solzhenitsyn to a man who became a dear friend to him. He was a religious poet named Anatoly Vasilyevich Silin. He was described as a meek and gentle man. He and Solzhenitsyn would walk together through the labor camps and share their writings. This relationship was precious. It seemed to transcend their reality. As they walked, they would quote their poems one to the other. They found certain consolation knowing others like them existed in this twisted Marxist nightmare. As a child, Anatoly was homeless. He was eventually thrust into an atheistic children's home. Like many Russian men in his day, he joined the Soviet military and fought against the Germans. This led to time in a German prisoner of war camp, which of course <laughs> was punishable by his home country. Men captured by the Germans and returned to the Soviets were given a 10-year sentence in the gulags. In the German camp, he discovered some Christian-based literature. Anatoly credited these books with leading to his conversion to Christianity. From that time forward, he learned to be a theologian and a philosopher. He spent the majority of his life a prisoner of war or a prisoner of Soviet communism. Writing religious poems helped him pass this treacherous time. 
This kind and thoughtful man worked in the camps, digging ditches. By the day's end, his back was tired, his knees were unstable, and his hands were shaky. But this did not interfere with his writings. His pen and paper were in his mind. The paperless poems that consumed his memory were written in iambic tetrometers with an irregular rhyme scheme. Anatoly had memorized some 20,000 lines during his time in the camps. He often spoke of the suffering Savior. Anatoly had no man to guide him when it came to learning the Word of God more perfectly. But somehow he found himself in sweet fellowship with the Baptists while in the labor camps. As they ate bread and hot food, they would sit together and talk of the Lord Jesus Christ. This lonely man, though doctrinally unsound, he immensely enjoyed his time with the Baptists. They were open and honest with him regarding their problems with his beliefs, but they were very respectful in their disagreements. They always welcomed him and tried to win him over to better understand God's word. From Anatoly's perspective, he considered the Baptists to be appreciative listeners. They would read the Gospels together and then take turns concealing this precious contraband. It was interesting that Anatoly did not seek out fellowship with believers from respective Orthodox backgrounds. In the first place, they were rare. They failed to display a character that was any different from the heathen unbelievers in the camp. They did not live lives consistent with what Anatoly had learned of biblical Christianity. But in contrast, Solzhenitsyn notes the character and conduct of the Baptists were outstanding. They were respectful but refused to compromise the truth. Their faith was firm and ardent. With great purity, they endured the labor camps without wavering. They displayed no signs of spiritual collapse. They maintained the truth in the most depraved of situations. Solzhenitsyn said, and I quote, They were all honest, free from anger, hardworking, quick to help others, and devoted to Christ. Of course, it was this devotion to Christ that made them targets for Soviet communism. They were intentionally targeted with the hopes of rooting them out of society. Each Baptist was given 25 years to serve in the labor camps. Their crime? <laughs> they belonged to a Baptist organization. Imagine with me. Prayer, 25 years. Reading your Bible, 25 years. Church attendance, 25 years. When this reality comes knocking on your door, what will you do? I would suggest that if you currently complain about the temperature at church or someone taking your seat, you will not likely endure real persecution when it comes. By the 1960s, there was a slight reprieve in use or the misuse of Article 58. This aspect of the Soviet legal code was a broad, intentionally wide-sweeping law intended to facilitate entrapment. This gave the communists the ability to convict anyone at any time. Solzhenitsyn said no one could escape its all-encompassing embrace. However, it was, in fact, more of a death clutch. Any thought, lack of thought, action, or lack of action could be grounds for conviction under Article 58. But somehow, 
As the use of the article began to wane, the Baptists still found themselves arbitrarily subject to its use. The communists were kind enough, though, <laughs> to reduce the sentence from 25 years to five years for the first offense. The religious convicts were also required to go through government-prescribed re-education. To accomplish this, they had to attend anti-religious lectures meant to cure them of their ways. When re-education failed, and it typically did, recourse under the law was then applied. Thus, in January 1964, at Nikitovka, a group of Baptists was put on trial. Any Baptists who attended the trial proceedings were held in jail for three days. This was used as an opportunity to extract any information and then use it against them later. One Baptist present kept a record of the trial events. He was given 10 days in jail and his notes were destroyed. The court brought in hand-picked individuals to sit on the front row during the trial. Their job was to stir the crowd against the Baptists by yelling exploits throughout the duration. To further build their case, the court also brought in false witnesses to testify against the Baptists. Exercise books loaded with scripture and Bible teachings were also brought in as evidence against them. Others testified the Baptists were meeting in the woods to hold prayer meetings. When the testimonies of the false witnesses were found to be overwhelmingly contradictory, the court would then carefully select any portions they deemed helpful to their case. The judge was not interested in truth or justice, but rather a conviction. A particular point that caused the communists to hate the Baptists was their refusal to receive atheist-trained and state-appointed pastors. Thus, they were being tried in court, and their children would be removed from them. Zenia Klopinona was a young girl on trial with the Baptists. She was allowed to give her closing statement in which she said, Instead of going to the cinema or to the dances, I used to read my Bible and say my prayers. And just for that, you are taking my freedom from me. Yes, to be free is great happiness. But to be free from sin is a greater still. Their sentences were shamefully handed down. Two were given five years in the labor camps. Two were given four years, and one was given three years. It is reported that these Baptists received their unmerited prison sentences joyfully. Then they said a prayer together before the court. <laughs> Onlookers could not help but note their long-suffering attitudes. Baptists who remained in freedom began to take notes and keep count of the persecutions. They formed a council of prisoners' relatives who began creating a bulletin that recorded details of the prisoners. The bulletins note that from 1961 to 1946, 197 Baptists were condemned in these mock trials. Fifteen of them were women. 442 of their dependents were left without support. 341 of them were under school age. The average sentence at this time was five years in exile, in the camps, or some combination of the two. Article 58, Corrupt Judges, and a society willing to look the other way facilitated destroying people's lives. I encourage you to ask yourself, what will you do? 
People who hold to this same Marxist philosophy are rapidly gaining control in America. They malign Christians, especially those who have refused to compromise the truth. Will you abandon your brethren and your God? You may soon be given an opportunity to find out. Thank you for listening, and God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.